Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we're going to talk about prostate cancer with Dr. Natasha Roberts, who is a specialist nurse and a clinical research fellow at Metro North Health. Welcome, Natasha. Hello. So good to have you here. We'd love to get a little bit of your origin story. So I've been a nurse for about 30 years, so I'll give you the abridged version because it's been a bit of a windy road. But really I did nursing because I was very restless and I wanted to go travelling and see the world. So nursing was a really good way to do that. And so I did my nursing degree, did my grad program and then took off to Africa like you do and then ended up in the UK where I did my ICU training. I stayed there for a while and then came back to Australia and did my honours degree because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was back in Australia. And then started having babies and um, did ICU nursing and research and then uh, ended up in cancer care in clinical trials because it wasn't shift work and I had little children to look after. And it was while I was there, I started to really develop a love for research. I'd always been interested in it, but it was our cancer trials unit is... um, it's a really active research uh, sort of setting and I just really got into it. So I ended up doing my PhD and then when I finished my PhD, I realised that I, um, I didn't want to be an academic. I wanted to go back to nursing because I got to see nursing from a completely different perspective and just realised how awesome nurses are and I wanted to be in the club again. So <laughs> back I went. <laughs> It's great that you found a space that kind of straddles both because that's one thing we've talked about with guests previously is it's very hard to do. You almost have to chop up your own career and make a portfolio career. It's it's emerging like the clinical research fellow roles in nursing, but it's been much easier to do in medicine is my observation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, the only uh, clinical research fellow here with Metro North with our clinician researcher program. Um, and everyone's sort of been learning as we've gone along because those pathways aren't really in place yet. Uh, but they're, you know, it's certainly emerging, yes. You're forging that path by the sounds of it. Now, I have really <laughs> been looking forward to this because I, I know Natasha professionally and personally and think she's incredible. But I really wanted to talk to you about prostate cancer because it feels like I don't know anyone who isn't impacted by prostate cancer. So before we get into your five things, what is prostate cancer? Well, very simply, prostate cancer is when uh, cells within the prostate uh, uh, develop to become abnormal and then they start growing. 
And cancer's not organised. It's very disorganised. It's very chaotic. And it th- these cells just grow. If the if they stay within the prostate, you usually don't have a lot of trouble. But if they start to grow outside the prostate, that's when uh, it can cause a lot of problems for men. And the prostate sits where? So this is what the problem is with prostate cancer. The prostate itself doesn't do a lot. All it does is make the fluid that carries sperm. Uh, the thing with the prostate is, and it's about the size of a walnut or a golf ball, it sits uh, in a very in very precious real estate in a man's body. It sits above the pelvic floor muscles, close to the bowel and underneath the bladder. And so it affects um, some really important um, day-to-day functions when we start doing things to it. So is prostate the most common cancer or does it just feel that way? Uh, no, it is now the most common cancer. The latest census data has confirmed that. Okay, so what is the incidence of prostate cancer in the male population? So uh, we're off the top of my head, about 18,000 men are diagnosed every year. In Australia? In Australia, yep. Yeah, okay. And is, when, when is the most prevalent? Like is there an age that men really need to be aware of this or it, can it happen at any time? Well, there are lots of different things that can impact your risk of getting prostate cancer, but it, your risk increases over the age of 60. It, we're seeing a lot more younger men get prostate cancer. And I think uh, that's there's a growing awareness now because of the young men um, uh, that have gotten prostate cancer. And um, that's really driven some um, policy level work by Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia to develop uh, testing screening guidelines and, um, and and to raise more awareness. Okay. All right. So now that we've kind of got that level playing field in the background. It's like point zero of yeah. our five things. Yeah. <laughs> we'll now go straight to your five things. Your sure. number one is prostate cancer does not discriminate. No, it doesn't. I mean, we do know that there are some um, cultural, there are some populations that genetically don't seem to get prostate cancer as commonly. But um, prostate cancer is one of the few cancers that uh, isn't, um, it doesn't discriminate according to where you live, your socioeconomic status, um, your age does influence it. But normally cancers tend to be influenced by a lot of health determinants. Uh, Prostate cancer isn't really affected by those health determinants except for your survival from prostate cancer. That's when health determinants really can make a difference uh, to prostate cancer. Which, which kind of follows logic, doesn't it? Because that when you've got poor social determinants of health, you tend to be later presenting, so the advancement of the disease is greater, miss some of the earlier prevention um, opportunities, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. And access to care... Um, uh, health literacy, uh, and also how you recover from prostate cancer treatment. We tend to be very good at uh, treating prostate cancer in Australia. The supportive care around prostate cancer, it's a work in progress. Yeah. And so if it doesn't discriminate, then really it's a whole male health issue, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. We did a, a survey of men and uh, the thing that 
there were a couple of things that really uh, were a concern to men, but one of the things was that they were worried about the impact their cancer was having on those that were close to them. So it, it doesn't just affect men, it affects all of those people around them. Um, we have a lot of uh, sort of ideas of what men's roles are and when a man gets prostate cancer, it really can challenge that for them. And it can be quite um, uh, traumatic when a man gets a prostate cancer diagnosis. Okay. So your number two point is around, you know, what are the causes of prostate cancer? Yeah, so we actually don't know what causes prostate cancer, but we do know that there are some things that people with prostate cancer have in common. So there's certainly a family um, component. There are, for example, BRCA, which is uh, also in women with breast cancer, uh, that can run in families and prostate cancer can run in families that way. We know that um, if someone has been diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, male family members around them are three times more likely to get prostate cancer. Uh, we know that uh, people, uh, men that uh, drink and are obese, tend to uh, get more advanced prostate cancer, uh, but that can be, be caused by lots of different things. Uh, so we don't really know what causes it, but we do know that there are uh, similarities between people that have prostate cancer. Your number three is what What can you, you kind of just, you know, what can we do to prevent cancer? Prostate cancer is your number three. But I'm curious to hear about that when you're saying the causation of prostate cancer is still a bit confusing. So I guess, so we can't prevent prostate cancer, but we can certainly prevent prostate cancer from having adverse outcomes to our quality of life and how long we live for. So uh, the, we, and as we discussed earlier, if we get it early, um, it's, it can be very treatable. And um, if you're really proactive, uh, th you can reduce your chances of getting um, severe prostate. Oh, no, that's not right. I'll get back. Yeah. And then I'll come back in. <laughs> um, so what, what we do know is that uh, if we're proactive with our PSA screening um, and we have GPs that are engaged with that and we have good health services around us, we can reduce the impacts of prostate cancer. That, that's really good. And I, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of terms so that we do d define along the way. Yeah. Um, BRCA and PSA as terms that I'm sure – Probably people have heard bounced around a lot, sure. but uh, always think, oh, I should look that up and then don't. Sure. So um, BRCA, um, and I'm sort of going outside my knowledge area, but it's a, a genetic mutation and you can uh, pick it up through genetic testing. PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen and basically it's just a protein that's secreted in the bloodstream that's created by the prostate. It doesn't mean you've got prostate cancer. It's just a red flag that something's going on with your prostate. Uh, and we sort of have some protocols about what to do if you have an elevated PSA. So when we're talking about prevention, like, you know, everybody kind of knows in terms of breast cancer, women should be, you know, looking at their breasts, touching their breasts, feeling for lumps on a regular basis. What's the equivalent for men and prostate cancer? So I guess there's a couple of things. Obviously, it's making sure you have your annual health checks with your GP uh, for PSA testing and general wellness checks. Uh, you do. Um, it's also a good idea to have, 
sort of notice if anything changes, like with breast cancer, bowel cancer. Uh, for men, it may be that they have some changes in their urinary pattern. Um, they may notice that they uh, go to the toilet more frequently or have trouble emptying their bladder uh, or they might even have some impacts with their erections. That doesn't mean you've got prostate cancer, but a change means you should go to your GP and have a bit of a conversation. Yeah, but there's nothing like in terms of physicality, there'll, there'll, there won't be any signs around the actual penis or their testicles or… No, nothing like that. I didn't think so. I just thought no. check. Yep. <laughs> All right. But so if you did have something like that, you should certainly go get it checked yeah. out as well. Yeah. <laughs> Probably won't be your prostate. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Your number four is like how do we treat prostate cancer? Because this is the one I'm very curious about. You know, I've got someone's friend, you know, a friend's dad, one person's got prostate cancer and they are having treatment. The next person has prostate can- cancer. They're not. What, what's the story? Uh, and this is this is the big challenge for people who are uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer. There are lots of treatment options available, and they're not. We don't have a one stop shop. They're delivered by different departments, sometimes in different hospitals. Uh, some of them are quite um, intense, and so uh, a- and there's some variation in the advice that uh, men can be given depending on who is providing the advice. Uh, We do have some pretty good data that's coming out now, especially from the UK, uh, about uh, what our recommendations should be. There's nomograms that have been developed in the US. But at the end of the day, uh, because every single treatment has an impact, men need to really go through a shared decision-making process because there are some things people will put up with and some things they won't. And so they've just got to weigh it up, what would, what, what works for them and what doesn't. So um, by very, very generally, if you've got a low – so we measure prostate cancer by a Gleason score, um, and I won't go into the details of that unless you want me to, but it's just a, a pathological measure of prostate cancer. There's two scores you get with a Gleason score. I'll quickly go through it. Um, and they're both out of five. So one will be what most of the cells look like and one will be what the other, any other cells. So, for example, um, one and two, from one to five, one and two we don't consider as prostate cancer, but three out of five we consider slow-growing cells, four out of five moderately um, uh, cells growing at a moderate rate and five cells growing at a fast rate. So if you, say, had three plus three, all the cells are growing at a at a slow rate. So in that situation, and this is like very, very generally speaking, in that situation, if there's not a lot of those cells um, in the prostate, we'd recommend to just keep an eye on it. That's a treatment uh, option that's called active surveillance. Um, and that just means that, that you've got protocolised visits of PSAs, biopsies and MRI scans and that you can actively just keep an eye on, on the prostate cancer. Uh, and then when you start moving up into that um, intermediate risk uh, space of Gleason, um, you know, six, even, um, sorry, Gleason seven, Gleason eight, uh, people start to look towards surgery or radiation therapy. That'll depend on lots of factors. It'll depend on your age, access to services, um, what side effects you're willing to put up with. 
um, all of those sorts of things. Um, and then when you start to get to the higher grade cancer, like a nine, I've, I've only seen 10 a couple of times, we'll be a, we, we might use a couple of treatments in combination. So um, one of the treatments we have is androgen deprivation therapy, which is an uh, injection that dampens testosterone uh, and that in doing that testosterone drives prostate cancer so it dampens the activity of the prostate cancer. Um, once, once the prostate cancer goes outside the prostate, then there's a whole different pathway of other treatments which can include uh, uh, radiation therapy, it, they can include um, androgen deprivation therapy, chemo, chemotherapy, we're looking towards immunotherapies. So there's, there's a whole lot of treatments available. And other treatment I haven't uh, mentioned is brachytherapy where they put in rods and they inject radiation into the prostate. That's another treatment option as well. I recall um, observing the insertion of the rods as a nursing student. And right. I've, yeah, Quite still, confronting. still have nightmares about that That's one. That's right, yeah, yeah. It's very confronting. But um, people are fast asleep yeah. and um, – and Where are the rods going? That, in, into the prostate. Via your perineum. Yes, it's very, it's really invasive for men. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a fascinating procedure. I know that's a sideline conversation, yep. but it, it is quite a fascinating procedure. So it's um, guided by ultrasound and then basically um, from what I can best describe, it looks like a battleship's board, um, that, like the game battleships. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a, a, a template map. Um, that the rods are then inserted under ultrasound guidance to uh, really focally target um, the target the area of the prostate that you're trying to treat the cancer in, and then those rods stay in for a um, predefined period of time. Yes, they? yeah, and there's variation now in how that's being delivered, um, but usually you you have to stay in hospital overnight. But now they're sort of looking towards lowering the dose and having two episodes of brachytherapy yeah. yeah so the other treatment option is theranostics and that's where uh, they inject uh, radiation that attaches directly to cells and um, it's done in the nuclear medicine department so it's a completely different service now that um, men um, interact with as well there's, there's been a sort of explosion in the development I guess for want of a better word of the technologies as theranostics my my real crude understanding and I'm throwing this out there for you to kind of correct rather than just putting you on the spot for yeah. that is essentially it's a combination of therapy and diagnostics hence the theranostics yeah and it's it's designed that that this nuclear medical therapy seeks out and finds a target cell that it's been essentially like immunoprogram to find and carries that treatment modality, whether it's a chemotherapy agent, uh, um, immunomodulator or a radio uh, radiation particle to that cell. Is that kind of a reasonable functional description? You've explained it much better than I could have, yes. Um, I have a shout out to a friend of mine, Jasmine Brady. If you want to learn about Theranostics, that's who you need to talk to. <laughs> we might have to get her on. <laughs> but it sounds like a missile. Like you program it to go somewhere, and that's where it goes. Yeah, pretty much. It's fascinating. Yeah. Mm. It's a, it's it's um, and Australia's leading the world um, in this space. Yeah, how interesting. So I guess what I'm hearing, and I and I'm hoping that we got 
we've got a number of patients who listen also to this podcast. But this is where the struggle is, right, is that there is – it's a spectrum. Is that what you're saying? And it depends what those numbers are as to the pathways that people might head down. But there is – would I be right in assuming from what you're saying is, is that the patient has a lot of uh, autonomy or say about what they decide they want to invest in in terms of their treatment? That we would hope so. Uh, we can't always access these treatments. Theranostics at the moment at the Royal Brisbane is accessed by a clinical trial. It's a very expensive treatment to buy. Uh, so uh, we don't have um, – across Australia there's lots of variation as to what's accessible and what's not uh, and that can be a deciding factor as well. Uh, at the end of the day, as a nurse, a specialist nurse, and I'm part of a network of nurses uh, that uh, have had a lot of training in this, uh, the, our job is to act as a, a sounding board and a resource to help people make those decisions. And uh, I think what's important is to just think about what what your goals of care are, uh, what side effects you're happy to live with and and or rehabilitate from because we talk about these side effects but we do have a lot of research also happening as to how we can mitigate those side effects as well. I work with some great physiotherapists, for example. So uh, I guess it's how motivated are you with regards to your treatment, with your recovery, and just be realistic. Don't be hard on yourself. Just ha- how motivated are you in those regards? What are you happy to put up with? What's important to you? And that should really influence your decision. Okay. So if I'm a bedside nurse and I'm listening to this, like prostate cancer, it's unlikely that I'm I'm seeing someone solely because they've got prostate cancer if I don't work in cancer. But what are the consequences, I guess, of having prostate cancer as a comorbidity? So someone's got diabetes and then they're diagnosed with prostate cancer or someone's got heart failure and then they're diagnosed with prostate cancer. How much does the prostate cancer complicate those other comorbidities or is that all very variable as to how severe the prostate cancer is? Yeah, so it really depends on how severe the prostate cancer is and also how people feel within themselves about the impacts of the prostate cancer. So, you know, as I said, where the prostate lives, it can affect some really important parts of a man's body. It can, and so it can affect bowel function, urinary function, sexual function, and all of those things can have knock-on effects. Treatments like androgen deprivation therapy can make men very tired, um, it can affect their um, emotional well-being because you get, you know, that, that big sudden drop in testosterone. They can get hot flushes. Uh, so there's all of those sort of – and they're very, very subtle. Uh, a lot of men I meet, I find out what they're dealing with and I'm shocked by what they're they, – they, you wouldn't know looking at them but when you speak to them they're dealing with a lot of stuff. So I guess it's um, if I was a nurse at the bedside, I'd just be very aware not to just make any assumptions because everything looks okay. Yeah. So I'm a bedside nurse. I'm looking after someone with diabetes. It says in the chart that this um, person also has prostate cancer. 
Is the best thing for me then to say, I've read you've got prostate cancer. You know, are you having any treatments from that? Are you having any symptoms as a result of that? Is there anything that I need to be made aware of as your nurse of how we can look after you as a whole person? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, diabetes has its effects. It can affect um, renal function, kidney function, um, renal function, urinary function. So can prostate cancer affect urinary function? So you can have like those two things compounding on top of each other. So it's just really a matter of doing a really good quality assessment to find out what impacts a man is living with to see if their reason for being in hospital may, you know, whether there might be some synergy between those things. My experience has um, also been that it can be a good opportunity to see what missed opportunities that person's had. So I've, I recall a number of patients that I've looked after that have been there for something else, have prost- prostate cancer, um, are conservatively managing it, but have what I would say really quite significant continence issues. And they just dealt with it and didn't know there was anything that you could do about it. So it's been a really good opportunity to have a a discussion about referral to a continence nurse and they've generally gone, oh, is that a thing? Mm. Um, and and even start sort of talking about different toileting strategies like trying to double void, those sorts of things. And yep. um, I, I feel like women tend to be much more across their continence issues, especially post-birth. That's almost like a training for going, this just needs to be talked about and worked on a little yeah. bit. But, um, but a lot of men, particularly in that older our middle to older age group will just tolerate it and go, well, there's a, nothing I can do about it and just finish it off there. So it's a good opportunity to potentially help someone. Absolutely. And the thing is um, continence issues, for, an ex- for example, are very expensive. Pads are very, very expensive and um, men may not know that they can get uh, support uh, for um, to buy pads. There's financial um, subsidy, subsidies available, uh, getting active um, pelvic floor rehabilitation. Um, it can cost a little bit of money, but it's much cheaper in the long run. I, I know men that just don't leave their house. They used to love going to the movies. They don't go to the movies anymore because they don't know if their pad will hold them. Mm. Uh, you know, so it's, it, it is actually really important to be having these conversations. I think that leads us beautifully to your fifth point, which is, How do we look after a patient or a loved one? Because I'm sure lots of people listening to this will know someone who has prostate cancer. Um, You know, how are they impacted and how can we help? Um, I don't know if – I I don't know if we can help, but I think we can give some respect for what people are going through and provide support. Um, There is very strong data to show that men – who have had a prostate diagnosis are at far greater risk of suicide. Uh, we know that they are certainly uh, are very likely to have a mental health event at some stage as a result of their uh, prostate cancer. Uh, and so I guess that's probably one thing I would flag is just check in that people are doing okay. Uh, but also uh, it, it's, it's, it's a tough disease to have to deal with for such a benign part of the body. I mean, I know it's important that we make babies and that sort of stuff, but really uh, the impacts are huge uh, for some men. But uh, we've got a lot of uh, 
there's like myself and a lot of other multidisciplinary colleagues are really trying hard to address those impacts. I, I can really see how that comes through when we're talking about the difference in treatment options, um, particularly active surveillance. Psychologically, waiting and for the patient, it's going to feel often like they're doing nothing and knowing they've got a cancer growing inside them. Like yeah. there's that, but from the outside looking in, that could be, we could really well-meaningly kind of go, oh, that's good. It's only at that level. But so there's a huge mismatch in the perception of how severe the disease is versus the impact that the real estate that's taking up in someone's mind. That's right. Some men though, they don't want to have any treatment. So they will push that active surveillance protocol to its absolute limit. Uh, and so I guess uh, that's the, the importance of recognising we're all individuals and there are some things that we're happy to live with and some things we're not. Um, so, yes, but for some men, they don't want to entertain the idea. They just want that prostate cancer gone so that they can move forward. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, you're saying because it can have continence issues, because it can have bowel issues, because it can have sexual function issues, this is something that's impacting the whole family and for people who identify as male, you know, a lot of this can be really, um, I guess, assigned to your identity and your masculinity. What are the things that we can do to also, I guess, normalise their experiences, help them engage with health services but also help their families to have those conversations? Yeah, I, I, and I guess that's the thing. It's just normalising it um, and just acknowledging that it's a bit rubbish. You know, I think sometimes people just want to pretend it's not going on, um, but I think just acknowledging that it's a tough time and um, if I can do anything, I'm here, saying to the partner or the daughter or the son or the neighbour carer or, you know, whatever supports look like um just sing out if you need anything i'm around it must be a bit tough at the moment while you're going through treatment or um yeah and i imagine continence you know i know that i've got friends who don't talk about their continence issues uh particularly post-birth or as they get older um one of the ways that i try to gently raise things with people is rather than saying do you have continence issues you know, yes, no, that can be quite shaming. But to say, oh, look, I'm aware that lots of people, you know, lots of men who have prostate cancer have issues with continence and perhaps, you know, urine leakage or urine re retention. Problem, you know. Problems with the waterworks is yeah. a really good <laughs> phrasing of it. I love that. You know, is that something you can relate to? You know, because you're saying I've heard this from other men, you know, yeah. is that a good way to approach it? Um. It's interesting all of those um, protocols between men and women. I guess it depends on the relationship you have with the man, but there's certainly very, very strong data uh, to um, uh, show that peer support is, is huge for men with prostate cancer and there's um, some excellent uh, group exercise programs which also work on the pelvic floor which have had shown fantastic outcomes for men. Uh, uh, it's just getting men there can be a little bit challenging. So, um, you know, inc encouraging activity, um, going for walks, um, joining, you know, the Wesley Choices has a great program which is freely accessible 
for men um, who've had a prostate cancer diagnosis. They get free access to an exercise physiologist. You know, maybe support in those ways um, would would be beneficial. Given that this podcast goes internationally, what is the best way for someone who's hearing this and maybe wants to know more about their patients or wants to know more about helping out their dad or their partner or their brother or whatever, is there a global organisation or, or how will we find these sort of peer support programs wherever we live? Uh, yeah, there will be a lot of variation. Um, most general practitioners should know. Certainly urology departments would know. Um, I was recently in Denmark. They had a peer support program there. Uh, which was very similar to the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. So, uh, but there's a, a lot of health services actually have just general. I mean, Australia's quite behind with this. We Sydney does it quite well. Melbourne does it reasonably well. But there's actually cancer uh, wellbeing programs around, uh, which uh, doesn't need to be about prostate cancer. And accessing those resources, Europe does a fantastic job with that sort of thing. Um, is a really good way to go. And would that be the same for people? You know, I know that services would be more limited, but if I'm living in a rural or regional setting, um, to just contact the local cancer, you know, support services um, to find out if there's a wellbeing program in my local area. You could. Um, I mean, in saying that, there's a lot of research happening. So, um, you know, and I could talk about all different programs around the world, but in Australia, we're doing a great job of developing telehealth support, online support. There's telehealth exercise programs, um, which have now been validated. Canada has a great program uh, for men who have had prostate cancer um, with uh, wellbeing resources, exercise programs, information resources. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, and it's a rapidly moving space. So um, yeah, I'd probably just do a Google search. All right, so you gave us five things about prostate cancer. The first one is that prostate cancer does not discriminate. Anyone can get it and unlike a number of other cancers, it doesn't have the usual social determinants outside of age increasing risk um, so that all men should have regular checkups um, with their GP and be aware that prostate cancer is something that they need to be aware of, particularly as they age. Number two, what causes prostate cancer? It would appear that, that this is still has a, a number of unknowns with regards to that. We know that age, again, increases incidence and prevalence, but that, you know, it follow the normal things, be as healthy as you can possibly be. Number three is how do we prevent prostate cancer? Regular screening. Um, be mindful of your alcohol intake, weight, uh, et cetera. But again, because this is a bit of an unknown playing field, that all men should actually be aware of any changes um, to their urine or any other erectile function, any concerns, go to your GP. How do we treat prostate cancer? There's a huge variation um, that will be determined by your numbers. I can't remember. It starts with G. Gleason. A Gleason score. Thank you. Um, and that... Then there will be, I guess, there needs to be some decision-making between the person with prostate cancer, their family and friends and their health practitioners about what 
is important to them with their quality of life and also what would they be prepared to put up with and then um, how motivated they might be to mitigate any side effects for any of the treatment options that they go into. This seems to be the trickiest area, would you say, Natasha, for people who get diagnosed with prostate cancer about whether it's a watch and wait or whether it's an intervention and what that may, may mean. Okay, number five is how do we look after a loved one? And I guess the thing that I've learned most out of this podcast is because lots of people seem to have prostate cancer, we can't see anything physically. They're, unlike a, a number of other cancers, they haven't potentially lost their hair from treatment. Um, they look to still be exactly the same. So perhaps there's some real minimisation around prostate cancer, whereas in actual fact, men can really be suffering um, with their prostate cancer or you know, because of the symptoms of the cancer or because of the interventions that they're having. So don't assume that what we're seeing means that the person is okay. Uh, to ask them about how they're coping either with the cancer or with the side effects of treatments, that this is a lot tougher disease with a lot of invisible symptoms around continence, around bowel function, around sexual function, all which can hugely affect um, someone's identity. So to look out for how we can support men, encourage conversations about this, encourage regular contacts for people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer Please reach out to support groups, to um, peer programs, to cancer wellbeing programs, and also for supports for their family and friends. How did I go? That sounds pretty good. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Natasha Roberts, for joining us today on Five Things. Thanks, Liz. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 